Gwei, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Spilling Labrador Tea Under Cedar Trees with Kate and Matt. Yes, what a wonderful Friday evening it is. Changing it up. It is. It's no longer a Sunday. <laughs> or a Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're so excited to have episode two of season two. Colonialism. Around the world. <laughs> Are we going to have a theme song? You know, it makes me think of the 90s song, like, around the world, around the world. Was it the 90s? I thought that was the early 2000s. Yeah, same, same, same. Either way, Daft Punk. Yeah, either way, it plays in my head when I think of <laughs> season two. <laughs> Alrighty, well, who is our special guest for episode two? We have a very special guest for episode two. One of my favorite people. Uh, Katie May Anawak Dunford. All right. Miss Katie May, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> yes. Hi. Um, I am Katie May Anawak Dunford. I am from Elkali, Nunavut, and I met Kate up here in the north, and I work with her uh, through Videa, and I met Madeline when I was in BC for training, and yeah, I really like you guys' podcast, so I'm really excited to be on here. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. We're so excited. <laughs> so, uh, as I'm, we... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, like, I've been, I've been excited since you've asked me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> Alrighty, so as we know is that we're doing episodes on colonialism around the world. We're starting off with Canada, and so we're covering the Métis Nation, we're covering covering uh, our homelands in uh, Nunavut um, and in the north, and then also we're covering some of our friends in different First Nations. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so this episode is for... Is focused on the North and the colonialism of the North. Yeah, so um, we're excited to get to hear what um, your experiences with colonialism and like what your community's experiences. Um, and then obviously Kate can probably pitch in a little bit as well. I'm just here to listen. I, uh, when Kate told me about what we would be, would what we would be talking about, I found it very interesting because um, there's been a lot of, like, this week I've been processing a lot of things and I was like, oh, this is because of colonialism. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and then when Kate asked me to, like, uh, be on the podcast and uh, told me what this, like, what we'd be talking about, I was like, oh, this is, this is, this is not a coincidence. This is the universe telling me that I have to mm-hmm. I have to talk about these things and process these things so mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I I find it interesting and um kind of uh special to be talking about this right now yeah definitely good timing um <clears throat> so could you make maybe walk us through um, what the beginnings of colonization looked like uh, in the north? Yeah, uh, was my understanding. Uh, I had to start with saying like it's from a very specific view. 
um, I'd say my parents and my grandparents especially um, saw the stages, I guess, of colonialism a lot more like firsthand. And I think for me, I'm seeing the after effects, um, but I still have an understanding of like what it was like before and during colonization um, because I, I just, yeah, I really want to learn a lot about that because I just think even if I wasn't around that time, it builds so much off of like who I am today because it impacted like how it shaped my parents and my grandparents. And for my grandparents, uh, specifically my grandpa, Jack, uh, my mom's adopted dad, uh, he was born out on the land, like like a traditional, um, you know, person. Uh, he was born in a skin tent that was like about to collapse because there was a blizzard. And actually, we just celebrated his birthday last month. And it's something he brings up. And there's a photo of him as a baby. And I think it's very shocking to hear that sometimes because my parents and I were born in hospitals, but my grandfather was born in a tent. And he also... Um, he also went to residential school and he, um, his mother was taken away during the TB epidemic, um, when, uh, sorry, when Inuit would be taken away, uh, from their homes and be relocated to, uh, I guess, Southern hospitals, um, to be like treated for with TB and yeah his mother my his mother was taken away and I think he was only a young boy and he just he never saw her again and ever since then like he's been looking for her and I don't know how long but eventually like he knew that he couldn't find her he had to look for her grave Mm. Um, and he recently, I think a few years ago, did find her grave, but there's still an uncertainty because, um, just because the files of just how like things were processed and, uh, kept like the records, it just isn't entirely reliable. And I think just... When I hear about my grandfather and my other grandparents, um, it's hard to fathom that this, all these happened, like all these events happened like within their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I just think colonization within the North was so, like I think it was just so quick because um, even though there was contact with, like, um, I guess European and, uh, I guess, I don't know if they were Canadian yet because it wasn't, like, Canada the country, mm-hmm. but there was, like, yeah, like, European people who were part of the Canadian government or the British government, 
um, and they had been in contact with Nunavut, but they weren't actively colonizing Nunavut or the North uh, the same way that they were colonizing other indigenous tribes throughout Turtle Island. And it just has to do with the accessibility um, of the North. It is a very harsh climate. Um, it's an environment that could easily kill like anyone. And I see why it did take, um, it, take it took more time for colonization to happen up here. But because of that, it felt like, like when I look back at it, it felt so condensed in like such a small time frame, and just so much happened within that time frame. So, yeah, I I think it's something that's hard to fathom for me. But when I listen to stories, it's real and. You could see that my grandfather and other people who went through similar experiences, um, they have to process these difficult, well, not just difficult, like traumatic events. And sometimes there's just so much that you have to process that it, it, it's, it just gets really hard. And I think some people get stuck and that's okay. I definitely understand that. Um, but I try to think of, um, I try to think of recovery or healing as like a river. And it just, it, in order to be like a river, you need to be able to flow and be able to let yourself go through the tides, even if they're scary and they're harsh. Um, and I think that's something that Inuit have been naturally, like, good at, in my opinion. Like, Inuit had to adapt and had to be able to keep moving forward. And I think that's why, um, when I talk to my grandfather and other people like him, I think that's why they speak with such grace and with such uh, dignity. You, you could still hear the pain, of course, and the like, the trauma that has been inflicted. Uh, but for the most part, um, my grandfather and other people I've spoken to are just very happy to be where they are now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's just very hopeful like because I just yeah like I have a hard time processing all these events and sometimes I feel a little scared of moving forward mm -hmm. um but I looked to my grandfather to like to be able to do that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no thank you for sharing Katie May um mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate I got to spend time with you and your family and meet your grandfather and um <clears throat> I really I'm not sure if you remember this day but I I do very like clearly I think it's something I always I think of because I think it's really interesting of what you said of um we were sitting on your porch 
<clears throat> at your dad's house and you said isn't it crazy that our grandparents were born on the land and then they learned bureaucracy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly like i th- th- that's the part that i can't fathom that like our grandparents yes like we're literally born on the land and they had to learn bureaucracy they had to learn how to be um territorial leaders and be able to be politicians know how to play the game know how to um read and write in the language and like not just the english language but like the political language there's just so much um i don't even know how to describe it the social dynamic is just very um interesting and i don't think i could be a politician at least not now because i don't know that social language i don't know how to <laughs> i don't know how to keep up and yeah, I guess I just am really surprised that um, people who are my grandparents' age like were able to keep up. And um, I just, yeah, it's it's a lot um, that they went through, and it's it's yeah. I think with the North specifically, like there's just. Like, I don't know, when I think about colonization, there's just a few events that, like, immediately pop up in my mind because they were so close to each other, and yet they were so different. Um, but, yeah, sorry. No, it's okay. Do you um, want to share those few events? Yeah. Uh, was, like, what first comes to mind is... Um, relocation because in order for uh residential schools to have been built up here uh there needed to be settlements that were established and um Inuit were nomadic people so they traveled um a lot and they didn't necessarily travel um as like a big town, uh, they traveled within small communities so that they could sustain themselves. Um, and with relocation, um, they forced Inuit to be in certain locations that were set by the government. And they did quite a few things to ensure that Inuit weren't able to leave these um established towns uh, because they wanted the transition of Inuit's dependence on land to be dependent on the Hudson's Bay Company. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, just primarily the Hudson's Bay Company services. Mm -hmm. I am not too sure of what other services that were provided, but I know that that one was the main, the main service. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that they did during the relocation was um, kill quite, like, a lot. Like, I don't even know the number, but, like, it's we're talking, like, over hundreds of um, Inuit dogs, huskies, so that uh, Inuit's way of transportation is just cut off. Mm -hmm. Um, And I... 
personally can't imagine that because I grew up with dogs. I grew up with huskies and um, my grandfather, even he even had like a dog team at a very young age. So dogs within my family, and I know many other families, like is a very important relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, even nowadays, if we don't entirely rely on them in a work sense, mm-hmm. um, it's just a very sp- special bond. Um, and they also really discourage like um, keeping the furs, the skins of um, animals that Inuit would catch. Uh, the fur, the fur trade was something that was very big, um, but the fur trade was something that was very difficult because there, the way of transportation, the dogs was cut off. So it became really hard to um, trade fur for money to buy food. Um, and I just think there was a lot of trickery mm-hmm. and a lot of um, dishonesty from the Hudson's Bay Company mm-hmm. in order to, um, I guess, manipulate Inuit into depending on their services. Um, another thing that I'm aware of for the process of relocation was that the government promised Inuit that they would only have to pay uh, a certain amount of money. I forgot how much it was. It couldn't like it was less than ten dollars, I think. Mm-hmm. Less than ten dollars for rent, um, and the rent cost would never go up ever. Like that's what the government promised Inuit. They said that. You only have to pay less than 10 bucks for rent, and then the prices will never go up. Well, now, 2022, we're in a very bad housing mm-hmm. crisis. Yeah. Um, rent is skyrocketing, and uh, I, I even struggle to find a house. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, this, it's, it's, a, it's very dishonest. And it's a very, yeah, like I said, it's full of trickery from the Hudson's Bay Company and from the government. And I just think the the whole process of relocation within the North was just, it was just a very, yeah, like a very slimy process. Mm-hmm. And I just... When I hear about it, I I feel very like I don't know. I like it makes me feel icky. Like I feel like I have to mm-hmm. like I don't know. Like go wash my hands because it's just <laughs> like ooh, this is this is too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and when it comes to the relocation process, like afterwards, um, quite a few buildings and the residential schools were established. And I just think even like, as it was like quite like getting established, the continuing of like the construction and all the people like coming into Nunavut that was like a really disturbance 
I didn't learn too much about that because I was just um, attending one of the classes from NS. I'm not in NS. Um, my friend is mm-hmm. in NS, and I just like to attend the, the classes mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I heard was that there was like in one of the communities, I forgot which one, unfortunately, but there was a plane coming in and out literally like every three to five minutes. And there was just so much construction and so much going on. And I think that was also a very difficult process for any, and just the Northern environment itself, because um, I don't think the North had experienced quite a disruptance like that. And it's just been ever growing since. And the the impacts of that is just like getting harder and harder to ignore. Um, and you could tell that the way that towns that were built in the North were not sustainable mm-hmm. and no one learned the land and how to build off of it. And I think that's also like, I think that's a big reason why Inui in these towns feel so isolated, not only like because we're naturally we're nomadic people who just, um, do, who just go mm-hmm. and go out on the land. Um, I also think, yeah, the structure the foundation of how these towns were built is just not stable mm-hmm. and it is really suffocating at times mm-hmm. and you could just tell like houses are falling apart because they just they weren't built for this land and i think that's like in my opinion that's like another form of trying to conform southern lifestyles like southern construction to the north mm-hmm. and it's just evident that it's just not working it's like yeah like i said like the houses are literally falling apart the foundation of the towns are literally falling apart the roads are terrible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah i guess when I think about the overall like colonization process, I can't help but think that um, as traumatic as it was and as um, as much as had happened, you could tell that the like the way that things were planned out by the government, they just they just really didn't know like what they were doing mm-hmm. or like what like they didn't know how to they don't know like how to integrate southern lifestyle to the north without such a shock Mm -hmm. and without such a like like i think the shock comes from like the loudness of it all the Mm -hmm. like demandingness of it all Mm -hmm basically trying to like just copy and paste what's going on down here up there but like obviously the structure and the ecosystem like doesn't match compared to here so I can imagine like that transfer like 
didn't work the same way and it just did a lot more damage than probably even down here faced Mm -hmm. in some sense and Mm -hmm. um yeah from the sounds of it like they brought both their tactics that they had cultivated down here and brought that up for their colonization of like trying to set up those residential schools and also knowing that like it's easier to separate everybody from you know their families to break them down faster and yep um but yeah I could imagine how like how quiet everything was and then all of a sudden it just it feels so chaotic yeah like that's one thing I was thinking of too when Kate and me was talking of like you're right like it is loud mm-hmm. like it's actually very very loud and I think it's very interesting also too like looking at it in a way as well like a way you're talking too of like colonization was happening to our people Mm -hmm. simultaneously um as our grandparents were negotiating as fast as they could for our land claims agreement to be able to have some kind of control um And so do you want to speak a little bit about that and how um, the land claims agreement was our way of reclamation of our territories and um, our ways of being? Yeah, of course. Um, I think it's something that I always get really interested interested in because uh, it's something... Uh, a lot of people in Nunavut talk about, um, especially when I was young. Um, in 2002, I think it was only about three or four years old, Nunavut. And um, growing up, my grandpa told me um, that uh, his dad, uh, I don't know what the position was called. Um, I'm sure he remembers what it was called um but his dad he was kind of like the speaker one of the speakers for the town that they were in um uh so that they could um be able to work with the canadian government and with uh hudson's bay uh just just making sure the the transition of um the established communities and the established new um canadian government in the north just making sure that that transition was i guess um going through yeah like that was that was i don't really know that part because it wasn't re- none of it wasn't really north of those territories and it wasn't none of it it was company land mm-hmm. um so when that's that's what my grandfather grew up with knowing that Nunavut is um technically a company land and they it's not their land it's not it's not what um his parents hoped for him to have um and when my grandfather was in residential school I think um I think he really couldn't stop thinking about how now, yeah, Nunavut is like his home, and it's um, all these other Inuit's home. Um, and I think a part of 
the reason why he couldn't stop thinking about home was because the residential school he went to was in Cambridge Bay, which is in Nunavut. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that um, was a big effect on him because um, he was still within the territory, but he couldn't go home. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was somewhat familiar with the place, but it wasn't. Yeah, it was a home. So with, I think as soon as he got out of residential school, I think he just really put his mind to um, making sure that this land is being able to be reclaimed as Inuit land. And I think there was many other, well, yes, (laughs) there had to have been many other people like his age and around his age who also were leaving residential school with that same mindset they're like well I need to go back home I need to make sure this is my home and not just somewhere I live Mm -hmm. um where I live needs to be my home and I need to be able to um I need to be able to have at least some control of how things are taken care of um and i really admire that because um of course i will never like understand the full effects of residential school but from my family i could see that the the biggest impact is shame and i think there is definitely a lot of shame within my um, within my family and many other families, um, but there's still a really big sense of pride of where we come from, and I think I think that's a big motivation as to why like my grandfather and many other leaders um, really pushed themselves to learn about bureaucracy and yeah the Canadian government and just how it works and how to um just learn how to be able to propose the idea of a land claim and not just propose that idea of the land claim but also be able to propose it in a way that's like hey if we get our territory we can benefit you the Canadian the Canadian government and I think it's just it's very interesting that like Inui did that because it's just like they had to really learn quickly like what the Canadian government wanted and how they worked um and once they learned that they just were like okay um let's see how we could help you so you can help (laughs) (laughs) and and i just think i think it's just very inuk because it's just like (laughs) i think ultimately like what inuit just want to do is just like help each other out because it's just like well we're here and um we can't really be anywhere else because it's really hard to leave the north Mm -hmm. Uh, so we might as well work together (laughs) (laughs) and yeah i just yeah like i 
um, I'm learning more about it as I uh, try to set up uh, some interviews uh, with my grandfather and some other people. Um, just getting to learn about the negotiation period of Nunavut because negotiations started in the 70s and Nunavut became its own territory in 1999. Mm-hmm. So that's about 20 years mm-hmm. of negotiations. And I know in retrospect that that's not a lot of time for like what they did. That's actually pretty quick. Um, but it's still a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I could really see it like when I read the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement, um, which is something I had to do growing up because my dad worked for NTI and NTI is what it's a, it's an Inuit organization and they are basically the organization that um made the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement they published they like they published the 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 textbook of the agreement for students to learn uh, but they also were they weren't known as NTI back during negotiations um Unfortunately, I forgot what they were called. I think it was ITK or ITQ, um, but there's a different ITK nowadays. Yeah. They're not <laughs> NTI. <laughs> um, but ITK and NTI work very closely together. ITK is also another Inuit organization. Um, but from what I know, NTI is what made the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement, um, like on paper. Um, the the Inuit uh, are who made the agreement, of course, through negotiations and through talks and many, 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 many meetings. <laughs> um, but yes, um, NTI publishes is, publishes the agreement itself, mm-hmm. and I think when I read it, even the, the condensed version, um, you could just you could tell how much thought was put into this to ensure to ensure that Inuit could live some like somewhat as to how we were before. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very special because one thing that I've learned about was um, this thing called two-eyed seeing. And two-eyed seeing is about um, being able to see. I guess the way that I learned about it, it was specifically for um, science. And it was combining um, Western ways of science and indigenous ways of science so that we could um, use these strategies and these um, these view well, not, not, not views, the, these knowledge from different people, from different viewpoints, um, and combine them together. And hopefully um, it'd be the most sustainable and the most um, logical way of dealing with climate change. Mm-hmm. But I also like to use two-eyed seeing in a very broad sense for everything, because um, I think there is a way to combine indigenous viewing and western ways of viewing mm-hmm. but i think that also has to do with me being like half you know half white i guess like that like two-eyed seeing is my identity basically. 
um but i think two i'd seeing is something that um inui uh strive to do and i could see that that's what um that's what inui came forward with when they were doing negotiations and when they yeah when when they were working out the nunavut land claims agreement they we're seeing both sides and seeing the benefits of both sides and seeing the also the 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 negatives of this agreement on both sides because um something my grandfather um told me is that he will acknowledge that there are flaws within the agreement there well and things that he would have changed things that he would have worked on um because 20 years later um at the agreement being signed he's really seeing the impacts of certain um of certain parts of the agreement and i definitely understand where he's coming from with that i think there's a lot of things people would change with the agreement but i think I will always be astounded with the agreement itself and mm-hmm. just the whole process of how it happened, how quickly it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and just how much it was just full of passion throughout the whole the whole process. Absolutely. Like it's um it figuratively and literally put us on the map, <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's it what is made, um, it, it changed so many people's lives, and it continued to change so many people's lives, right? Um, and I know you and I talk about this often of like, our our grandparents are old and they're lovely and they're amazing, and it's our turn too to make sure that the the agreement keeps living. Um, and that, uh, we do our best to, to see their vision and, and then bring our vision into it as well. Cause for the next 20 years, right. Cause it's not, they were thinking about us. Right. And so now it's our turn to think even further beyond us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, <laughs> sometimes I get nervous about that. <laughs> yeah. But I think. I think they were also nervous about this. Absolutely. <clears throat> Clover wanted to join the conversation. <laughs> oh, so cute. <laughs> <laughs> She's so crazy. What do you want to say, teacher? I mean, it's amazing that, like, almost as soon as colonization started... Like, the Inuit were like, no, 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 no. Listen, listen, listen. This isn't going to work. <laughs> let me talk you out of it. <laughs> let me tell you how this isn't going to work. But also, let me see what you can still do for me. Um, and so it's... It really didn't deal Right? Yeah. So it's beautiful, like, to slowly get to start to learn about the land claims agreement. Because, like, not only does it, like, secure, like, your space, um, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like... It, it starts putting you back and like reclaiming your power 
mm-hmm. and being able to like especially now that like reconciliation is moving forward like this is another thing to like push forward and be like this is ours like you need to listen to us we we know the land we understand our culture we were here for time of memorial like um and so it's just interesting but i'm wondering what else is like being done up north for um like reclamation and like to reset what's been um done by colonization currently yeah i think nowadays um a really big thing uh that has been um reclaimed is um traditional inuit tattoos and i know that it's something like i guess primarily um inuit women are reclaiming uh, but I also know of some Inuit men and also non-binary people um, and people of all all inclusive genders. Um, it's something that they're reclaiming. And I've also reclaimed that. Um, I'm the first person within my immediate family to have gotten my tattoos. Um, and they mean so much to me. They mean so much to everyone who has them. And I think... Um, it's, in my opinion, it's the, like, the quickest way to just physically see that, um, we're saying, this is who I am, I am Inuk, and if you can't deal with that, well, then you can't be around me, you can't look at me, because this is who I am, like, (laughs) and... I just, yeah, I just think it's a beautiful thing because it's literally, like, in your face. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, I think, I think Inuit are pretty like that. Um, Like, we're, we're, we're pretty, like, I think for the most part, we're pretty gentle, but we're also really in your face because (laughs) we're proud. (laughs) And, um... I think I could see that with art. Um, I think uh, art is something that immediately comes to mind because I'm an artist myself. And I think just the, like, I think even art is just like a whole nother topic in terms of like how we're able to um, transition to the Western world because, um, I think it's really interesting for Inuit to learn really, like different techniques that we didn't learn about because of um because of just like our limited resources in terms of like supplies for art. Mm-hmm. Um but with what we've have now, there's Inuit that are literally like all over the world and they have these amazing art shows, these amazing um films or songs, or dances, just, like, just amazing art, and I think that's another way of being able to show the world that, hey, um, we are Inuit, we exist, we're here, and we have the ability to express ourselves through art the same ways that other people can, but we're showing our own specific like stories through those techniques Mm -hmm. and i think 
yeah, I think it's just really, really cool in my, like to be able to see Inuit like all over the world, to like be able to travel for their art. Because when I was a kid, I I didn't think of like an Inuk being like in Paris or like <laughs> or like I don't know, this like somewhere else that's not North America. <laughs> like I just never thought about it because I was just like, well, they're just they're in the north. And then I learned about like all kinds of like many like many different Inuit all over the world. Um not just in the Arctic Circle. And I just yeah, I think it's really it's really cool to see other Inuit, but it's also really cool to see non-Inuit be like, oh, I saw this Inuit artist and their <laughs> art, and it's just, it's really cool. And it's just like, wow, you, you, you saw. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, <laughs> I think art is a big way for Inuit to like reclaim our culture because I think we're really expressive people and I think I think it's just a really natural way for us to express ourselves um I I I just especially like love listening to like Inuit um artists songs because like even if they're not out singing, like it's just hearing like Inuktitut or just knowing mm. that they're like Inuk, <laughs> it's just it's really cool. Mm-hmm. And I think I just think that there's just such a broad audience around the world who appreciate these artists. And I, <laughs> yeah, I just I can't wrap my head around that sometimes. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like art is like a great um, avenue for a lot of us to make that reclamation and just like also just like a reconnection as well um, to our cultures. And yeah, the amount of Inuit art that I've seen lately in like different mediums is amazing. And um I've had an amazing time getting to learn stories. Um, there are some terrifying things <laughs> that you guys like to tell your children. Um, <laughs> I have the scary book from Inhabit Media of all the scary things. Oh, and I'm terrified. Uh, it was like, no, thank you. Yes. Um, I grew up on those stories. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong? But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's great to see, and um, it's a lot more. It's becoming more accessible, even though like I I do understand that like depending on the medium that like uh, people are trying to express themselves through and like do the reclamation. Um, yeah, supplies is probably very difficult to get out there. I Caitlin showed me how much it was just to buy food, let alone art supplies. So um, it's definitely a barrier, but it's it's still amazing to see like the resilience and like the determination of being like I'm gonna do it I'm gonna get it out there um this is who we are also enjoy <laughs> like it just mm-hmm. um but I'm my I think one of our last questions is is just what 
what more do you think can be done and like to, to help decolonization within the North and within your community? Yeah, I think a really big thing uh, that should be focused on is um, a refocus on Inui learning how to deal with the the governance of like just yeah like with Canada and just with Nunavut like the government of Nunavut being established for quite some time now I think if you <laughs> if you are within Nunavut or you keep up with the news of Nunavut you may be aware that um our government systems um, are not doing so well. We're very un like underemployed, um, and there's a lot of um, there's just a lot of barriers uh, within the north from us Inuit like being able to work within the government, and for even like Inuit who do work in with the government, um, the support. And the services that are provided for them are just not sustainable. I think I think they are exhausting workers mm-hmm. and they are um, they're treating Inuit workers quite unfairly because there's a lot of people uh, who are non Inuit and majority of the time like white people. Um, who just get paid to fly up here and get um, get housing. Um, the, the flight is paid for, the housing is taken care of, most utilities are taken care of, uh, just so that you live up here mm-hmm. and have a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because the GN, the government in Nunavut, finds, I guess, I guess, this might be a controversial thing to say, but this is what I believe. <laughs> I think the GN finds Inuit unreliable for mm. the work that they're doing. Mm. And I think the work that they're doing is just not sustainable for Inuit. And I don't really think it's sustainable for anyone mm-hmm. like at all, really. Um, and I think when Inuit workers are aware of that and they have to go into a job that they know that is not sustainable for them or for the people around them, um, it just gets really, really hard to get into the office. And I think the the GN needs to refocus um, supporting Inuit and being able to um, have Inuit access the GN mm-hmm. very easily, like very easily be like ex- like accessible in the sense that if you are not um, qualified to have a position, then there should be training provided for you to start at a certain level and then continuing to be trained to get to the level you want to be at. Yeah. And I don't think that is excessive because it just means 
that if you can like if the GN continues to train their employees, especially their Inuit employees, that just means that those employees will stay there because they're sustainable mm-hmm. and they're cared for, they're mm-hmm. supported. And I just don't think that that's there. And I think the the GN's focus has lost has like strayed its path mm. since since the agreement's been signed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't fully know what it was like the the few years after it was signed. Um, but I think the reason why the GN is how it is now is because of um, things that weren't worked on. Um, when it came to the agreements. And I think when my grandpa and other people were talking about things that they made of change or what might have they worked on, I think it's those specific things that like are impacting the GN and how they um and how they're losing focus. I think yeah, I think that is something that needs to be worked on so that none of what is what it like so that just so that Nunavut could be what it was meant to be yeah a body of government that is a colonial system but it's also in betterment for Inuit so that we could have um a relationship with the Canadian government that benefits the both of us Mm -hmm. no absolutely um yeah, it's a lot to think about. I really enjoy thinking about that. Because <laughs> I'm a crazy academic. I was like, what? Um, wow, 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 wow. No, I complete. It just makes more sense, right? Of like, you build people up and then they'll want to stay. Mm-hmm. And there'll be more opportunity also from us in the South to go home and actually work for the GN. Exactly. I think, yeah, I just think it's very backwards how the GN is not focusing on Inuit employment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So teacher lied and we do have one last question. Oh, my bad. Yeah. It's the question I keep in my brain that I don't tell you. Well then, (laughs) she's making a liar out of me. What are your three favorite things about being Inuk? Oh, that's right. Ooh, that's a great question. <laughs> I think my three favorite things about being Inuk is that um, I get to be a part of such strong people who are like who've been through such extreme climates and situations, and yet they they are able to power through. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely like the number one reason. There's a lot of pride within that. Um, second reason, great storytellers. <laughs> I know that earlier. <laughs> I know that earlier, like you, uh, you were saying that there's scary stories that they tell children, but I had to tell you that there's a best story <laughs> that really impacted me. The Kalupalik. 
I believe in them. I still, yeah. to this day, I don't go ice hopping. I don't go near the water because I don't want to die. You don't be taking the Mountie? <laughs> that has to. <laughs> I'm like, I'm too scared. Like, that just, that requires really good storytelling. <laughs> and the third reason, um, uh, I just think, I just think um, the history, the culture is just really interesting. I, I really like like learning about igloos, just how they're built and just like how to build one and um, just how to build all these tools from like everything that's already around you and just how to like not waste every, anything. Um, I just, yeah, I think there's just so many useful skills that Inuit have learned throughout like thousands of years. And yeah, I just think, I think it's really admirable to have that much knowledge. Um, so when I do like learn new, like new skills, I know that I can apply those skills, not just in like, in a situation where like I'm out on the land, I'm able to apply these skills in my day-to-day life. And it's just in a ver- in a slightly different way than how I would do it out on the land. And I think that's really neat. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. That's the best. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, Katie Mae, talking to you has made me feel less homesick. Aww. Aww. I'm so excited to see you, Katie. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, I have little gifts for, um, for, for you, Madeline, and for, for, um, Jessica. Um, my mind, Jessica. Sorry. <laughs> all good. It's okay. I, I. I know a few Jessicas, so I always have to keep up with people's last names. So it's just like, oh shoot, which is this? But yeah, I have, I have some stickers. <laughs> ah, we love stickers. We do love stickers. <laughs> and then pretty soon you're going to have your own podcast that we can share on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And we're so excited for you. We're all about promoting our friends. Yeah. <laughs> Boost you up. Oh my gosh. Yes, I'm really excited to be starting um my podcast soon. It's gonna be called Baby May because Aww. I'm Katie May. Because you're Baby May. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know. You're so cute. So thank you so much for spending. Well, spend- now I'm gonna have Oh yeah. You- <laughs> That's I'm okay. gonna have you guys on my podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh no, thank you so much for spending time with us this evening. Mm-hmm. It has been nothing but wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Well, teacher, where can you find us? I had a lot of fun time. Yeah. We did too. <laughs> Alrighty. Yes, so you can find us on any major podcasting platform. We're talking Spotify. Apple, Apple Podcast, Pocket Podcast, some other one that's mostly viewed in Germany, as I mentioned before. Um, and then you can also follow us, and we would love if you could follow us, because we're hoping to get to a 1,000 followers. 
by the new year. Yes, ma'am. Um, on spilling lab tea under cedar trees. Um, and you can find both of our personals through that as well. Yeah, so see you later. Namultus.